The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, a jobs report, or maybe not, and we get a preview of what to expect. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking ahead to the UK's party political conferences. I'm Kaylee Lines, getting ready to make the trip from Washington to New York for the start of the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm Doug Krisner. The first woman to lead the Reserve Bank of Australia will guide a decision on interest rates this week. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. The business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a look at the September jobs report coming out this Friday. Or is it? With the government shutdown, a lot of data critical to Wall Street investors will not be released until a bill, even a short-term stopgap bill to fund the federal government, is passed. To talk about what we can expect with Washington at a standstill, we welcome Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Michael McKee. Michael, thank you. Happy to be here. At least I'm here. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Someone's working. Well, Michael, we've we've all been here before. 20 government shutdowns since 1977, the latest one, 35 days long. That was in late 2018. Uh, it's it's horrible. But let's talk, let's start with what is not affected. Social Security and the Postal Service, right? Right. Uh by well and Medicare goes goes forward. Uh the the um Programs that are entitlements are funded uh, separately from all of this. They, they, there is no mechanism to reauthorize them. So they, they will go out. Uh, the uh, problem is, is if enough people at the Social Security Administration come in to lick the stamps, I guess. But uh, the, uh, the uh, Postal Service is also self-funded. The Federal Reserve will be open because they are self-funded. So not Everything is closed, and most parts of the government that the public would interact with will be closed, although there are accept- exceptions uh, for uh, workers in what they call public safety facing uh, or uh, jobs uh, like air traffic controllers, people like that. Well, that's, I think that's a good thing. But there are nearly three million workers who will be out of work or told to stay home. Essentially, well, there's just over 2.9 million federal workers and about uh, the guess is 800,000 or so will be told to stay home. Others will come to work but will not get paid. Now, that includes 1.3 members of the active duty military who are going to be putting their lives on the line for you uh, for free for the time being. Now, everybody gets 
paid according to a law that was actually adopted after that last uh, government shutdown. Uh, it was customary before. Now it's a law that back pay is made up. So they will get paid eventually, but it does create a hardship for all those people because they have to tell the credit card company, I don't have the money this month. I, I'll have it maybe next month. Yeah. <laughs> Call me next month. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of spending power as we enter the fourth quarter of people who, and these people need that money. Yeah. That's that's a problem for the economy if it goes that long. Um I'm not the political correspondent in Washington these days, but um, there does seem to be a feeling that this one could be longer than the ones in the past. And if that's the case, then you have an an issue for the economy. Now, what we find in the past is that most of that is made up right away because people get their back pay and they go out and spend. The things, the people who get hurt are the people who might, uh, say, run a restaurant or something like that because you don't have money, you're not going to go out to dinner. Well, you can't redo that dinner because uh, the day has passed. So there will be hardships around the country. And one of the things that people don't realize is that the federal government is spread all over. These 2.9 million people are in every 50 states, every one of the 50 states. They're all across the country. So you'll feel it in your own state. Well, there's also, you know, like you say, the restaurant right outside uh, Elgin Air Force Base. Um, you know, the the store right outside where everybody gets, well, the, you know. Uh, they're, they're one, one of the big problems, of course, we laugh about it, is that they always close the national parks because then that provides a sign that says closed that the TV people can take a picture of and represent the shutdown. But there are a lot of tourist businesses outside of national parks that will be in trouble. And in California, they're talking about using uh, some of the money that they get from the state lottery to keep some of those places open because they uh, they they uh, will be in trouble if this goes on for a long time. Yeah, it's a real hardship for a lot of business owners. Not Congress members, though. They still get paid. Congress members <laughs> get paid and uh, the president gets paid because there are constitutional provisions that would keep them from uh, getting not getting paid. But everybody else at the White House and all the staffers on Capitol Hill are, are not getting paid. The interesting thing about the law, Tom, too, is that uh, they, people can't volunteer. You're not allowed to volunteer to work for free. If they send you home, you're home. You're home. That's it. And, and you'll wait until it's over. Until it's over, let's talk about how this could impact Wall Street, investors, and the economy. And and let's talk about, well, we'll start with Wall Street, the SEC. You know, no. there's going to be... Well, the SEC, most of their work will shut down. You'll still be able to, if you, if you have to file, uh, you'll still be able to upload files to Edgar. And uh, so the, that work will go on, but there won't be anybody in the office uh, at the SEC. And so uh, a lot of their enforcement uh, stuff will go by the boards for uh, the time being. Um, if you want to get a passport, you're not going to be able to do that while it's shut down uh, or, or anything like that. Uh, government records will not be accessible if you need uh, to get your military retirement or a new Medicare card or something like that. So a lot of things that uh, are sort of day-to-day mundane things won't be happening. And that'll start to build up some frustration. But history shows Wall Street tends to overlook all of this. And the last two, which were the longest ones that we've had shutdowns, uh, the markets finished up uh, from the time that they shut down to the time that they reopened. So it's kind of they figure this is a temporary thing that, that won't last. If it lasts longer, 
then maybe you do have an effect because investors start thinking that uh, consumers aren't going to be able to spend as much money and corporate profits go down. Big concern. Also, uh, I mean, there's some critical data coming out. I mean, it's always coming out from the government, but next week, you know, including the biggie, the jobs report, and after a very dismal, I would say, September for the markets, I mean, investors are counting on some of this coming out, but we may not see. We may not see it. All of the September data after today uh, is in, and they could release it on time if they got a quick deal, uh, or they could release it with only a few days delay if they don't, uh, but still get settled in the coming week. Uh, but if it goes longer than that, then we won't get the jobs report for a while. You've got the CPI coming up on uh, October 12th, the PCE inflation data on October 27th. Those numbers could, in theory, not come out. And then the Fed is going to be left flying blind at their uh, November 1st meeting. Uh, and as uh, one observer said quite accurately, how are you supposed to have a soft landing if the pilots are blind? <laughs> That's a and, good point. Yeah. And so for the Fed, it'll be difficult. Probably means that they don't. Uh, they, they, they don't move on November 1st because they might feel they don't have enough data. All the private sector data comes out, the ISMs, the yeah. ADPs, things like that. Uh, but the government data will not come out and that could be a problem. And then longer term, if everybody's off work, then nobody's collecting data. The uh, the way the jobs numbers work, uh, most of that data would come in. But uh, inflation data is what a price is on a particular date. And if they don't have that, then uh, if they don't collect at that date, it would be hard to backfill it. So we could end up seeing a month without without inflation data, Flying which only blind. makes the, the Fed's job even harder. That's not good. And we've actually gotten some encouraging data about inflation. And, we did. And last week, last yeah. week the, uh, the PCE numbers came in very low. Uh, the core PCE was up only a uh, tenth of a percent. And on an annualized basis, that would be inflation of about 1% for the year. So we've had a dramatic drop in the Fed's favorite inflation indicator. And uh, if that continues, then that may mean the Fed is done and may mean the higher for longer, longer becomes a little shorter. But the problem is we may not know. No, and also jobless claims have been, you know, 204, 205 for a couple of weeks, and we haven't seen that in a while. Well, that's probably going to change because if you're on a strike, uh, you can't file for jobless claims. But if some workers at your plant are on strike and that means your plant shuts down, so you're just furloughed, then you can. And so... Uh, we will probably see distortions start to come in that as the UAW strike expands. Well, we got a lot to look forward to and uh, a lot to be worried about. Michael, thank you so much. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we look ahead to the UK's political party conferences. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. 
I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, the rise and fall of FTX and a preview of the trial of its founder and former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. But first, the UK has had a turbulent time with four prime ministers in four years and significant economic challenges. Now, a general election emerging into view in the next 16 months. So the annual party political conference season is getting extra attention. Let's bring in Bloomberg radio anchor Caroline Hepker and Anna Edwards in London with more. Tom, party leaders, activists, press and all sorts of politicos dispersed to various cities across the UK in October for these annual party conferences. In the next few days, the Conservatives gather in Manchester and Bloomberg Radio will be there to cover it all, including the set-piece speeches from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. Well, ahead of that, we've been speaking to Bloomberg opinion columnist Adrian Wooldridge about why this year may be different. What Wooldridge describes as a feeling of profound change in in the air in Britain and we began by asking him firstly what party conference season is really like. Well it used to be something that was really serious particularly on the Labour side that policy was actually made at the party conferences now they don't make policy policies made in secret enclaves um, but they do do some quite important things one is that they create uh, a certain momentum you know, if you get have a good party conference, that's good for you. Another is that they create enthusiasm amongst the party base, the people who actually knock on the doors, do all the do all the work. You know, the party is, is, is conference is fun. You know, you get that you 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 have high japes and you you come away enthused. And it's also a sort of talent show. The um, the prime minister or the leader of the opposition has to prove themselves um, with their with their speech that matters, and also all the other people who are manoeuvring for preferment. Uh, also um, Hmm. have to show their wares. Okay, so a bit of a showcase then. Very much. Uh, When I've been at these conferences and and been in the sort of large uh, rooms, the large auditorium where they're doing these uh, these big set-piece speeches, it's really interesting because they're talking to the converted, so you'd expect there to be lots of applause and uh, appreciation, but sometimes there isn't. And I wonder this year, with some some divisions within the Conservative Party, what it is that Sunak and Hunt really have to get across in their speeches to try and win the rooms over. I think what Hunt has to get over is the idea that things are on the mend. That's the the process of of mopping up the mess that was left by um, Rishi's uh, predecessor uh, has gone on, and they have a vision for the future that it's not just an endless process of of, of cleaning up and, and and cutting people's living standards. What Rishi has to do, what Sunak has to do, 
is to introduce himself to the party. This is his first party speech, um, and people don't have a very clear idea of who he is. Um, they know a few cliches about him, but they don't have, have a sense of him as a person. And he needs to introduce himself to the party, but also to the country, uh, both as a person, but also as somebody who has a vision of where we need to go in the future, not just five things to be ticked off, but an actual vision of the country. Yeah, of course, it's five pledges from the start mm. of this year, but what is going to do with the economy? Okay, so look, I mean, it's not just the Conservatives, the Lib Dems have already had their party conference in Bournemouth, the SNP also a significant yeah. force in UK politics overall. And then there's Keir Starmer the Labour Party, very hotly tipped in the polls, at least for now. What is he going to be focused on at conference? We have a sense of who he is because he's been around for some time. We know his his, his sort of conventional state, fairly boring, but a decent sort of guy. And he's more avoiding mistakes than doing anything else. So he has to um, create confidence that he's capable of delivering change that he won't give in to the to the left of the party that he's a, he's a safe pair of hands mm. and that he knows how to translate his general vision of things into a, a set of policies that might work uh, his great mistake or his great weakness i think is to talk for too long i mean the last <laughs> conference speech that i ever that i that, that i saw of his in you know live live speech it was a good speech it was a well written speech but it just went on and on and on and on you're just <laughs> waiting for it to end and then he'd start again I go, well that's um, a danger for the whole of conference it, party it, conference it, season, it, it, is, it, it is and i think sunak's speech is is being trailed as being a very long speech i think that's a mistake um you know this is not north korea you know we're supposed to we're supposed to <laughs> you know have some sort of democratic um right to a short attention span. Um, but <laughs> I'm sure that's somewhere in, a co in an unwritten constitution, yeah, yeah, abso isn't Absolutely, it? yes. Um, let me ask you about comparisons with Blair as we're talking about Labour. We did a big piece just this week on yeah. uh, the big take uh, piece on comparisons with Blair. There are some, but then there's also a very different fiscal situation that he'll be yeah. inheriting. I mean, how far do those comparisons go? Not very think? far, really, partly because they're very different people. I mean, they're, they're, they're both lawyers and they're both um, middle-of-the-road Tony Blair's more to, more to the right, uh, but both sensible uh, politicians. But they're really quite different people. Blair was a, a showman, you know. He you know he he played in a rock band at Oxford. He liked to you know he was an actor. He liked to perform. Keir Starmer isn't like that. He's he, he's somebody who you know is more of a sort of backroom man in 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 some ways. He doesn't like the the, the stage naturally. Mm, for a lot for a backroom man, he's picked a lot of front room jobs. Uh, <laughs> he, he has indeed, but I, I don't think he's, you know, he wants power, but I think, and, you know, to get power, you have to do this sort of thing. But I think that actually appearing before large groups of people, he's not his not natural measure mm. in, in, in the way that it obviously is with, with Blair. Yeah. I think the other big difference is that the circumstances in 1997 were right for Blair. They were right for a progressive realignment, both in terms of, you know, you had a young uh president of the United States with a new set of ideas. You had the talk of the third way. You had a lot of economic room for a sort of expansionist policy. All of those things don't exist. We have Joe Biden, who's not exactly young in the United States, uh, and we have a, a real shortage of, of, of money, not very much room to do things. So they keep talking, you know, about a progressive moment or spending 40 billion a year on a green revolution and things like mm. that. Um, or, you know, getting rid of, not getting rid of, but, but, but shoving taxes on public schools. And then they they come back. Retreats, yeah. They retreat. They keep retreating. And basically, it's not time for a 
progressive realignment. It's time for a set of pragmatic policies to deal with, 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 with mm. particular problems. Well, no doubt we'll hear this phrase, working people, many, many times. Hard-working people. Indeed. Um, and who doesn't want to be that? No, but exactly. uh, I've heard it, we hear it a lot from the, the um, Labour Party, but actually increasingly I've heard that phrase now from the Prime Minister himself. So this seems to be taking on. What are working people and voters in the UK, do you think, you know, in, in as far as we can take a reading, what do you think they're thinking about now? Will they pay any attention to party conference? Well... One of Tony Blair's great statements was that people spend about 30 seconds a year thinking about politics. People don't think about politics as much as politicians think that they do. And also we're getting a general turnoff from politics at the moment. I just saw the host of the Today programme you know, complaining that people were just turning off politics because it's too, too, too awful. So I think that people are basically worried about their living standards and they want somebody to address those living standards. They want inflation to be brought under control. They want the price of food to be um, more reasonable than it might seem at the moment. And I think more broadly, they want a, set, a sense of order in society. In the mm. sense, if you look at politics, it's, it's chaotic. You know, things are falling apart. We, we go through prime ministers like some people go through wives. Um, it's... Um, well, four in four years. Yeah, four, four, just over, exactly. Four in, just over four um, years it's, 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 it's an incredibly unstable environment. So I think people do yeah. want stability and a sense of practical policy. Right. And one thing we'll be watching for, I suppose, as the conferences get underway, is some of the wedge issues that will likely feature in the campaigns towards the next election. We've heard a bit about uh, net zero from the Conservatives and a different take, shall we say, on net zero around, certainly on uh, EVs. Is this going to be an effective wedge issue, do you think, uh, for, for dividing the population, Adrian? Is, that, is this going to be the one that works for the Tories? Yes. Uh, not Just, that I don't think it'll work in the sense that they'll win the next election. That seems very unlikely to me. Thanks to Bloomberg's Adrian Wooldridge. I'm Anna Edwards. And I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. And you can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thanks, Caroline and Anna. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Sam Bankman-Fried is in court this week. We'll get you the latest. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Sam Bankman-Fried is accused of orchestrating one of the biggest white-collar crime cases in U.S. history. And this week, the trial starts on Tuesday. For what we can expect, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, that's right. Next week... I won't be spending the whole week here in Washington because there is a big event going on in New York City. Sam Bankman-Fried, the once billionaire founder of FTX, the now fallen crypto exchange, is going to be on trial. It starts 
this coming Tuesday. Ava Benny Morrison, who is one of our great legal reporters here at Bloomberg, is joining me to talk about this case and what it could mean for Bankman-Fried. But first, I feel like I need to remind everyone about how we got here. Remember, Bankman-Fried founded FTX in May of 2019. By October of 2021, the company raised capital at a valuation of $25 billion. And at the end of that year, It said it had more than 5 million users globally, about 1.2 million of them in the U.S. By early 2022, its valuation was $32 billion. Sam Bankman-Fried, who then was just 30 years old, was worth more than $26 billion, making him one of the world's richest people. And FTX was one of the world's biggest crypto exchanges. But in November of last year, It unraveled very quickly. It all started with a report from Coindesk about Alameda Research, which was a crypto hedge fund also founded by Bankman-Fried in 2017. And the article found a significant portion of Alameda's assets were made up of FTT. That is a token that FTX created. In response, CZ, the CEO of rival crypto exchange Binance, said he was going to sell his company's entire holding of FTT. That triggered a massive wave of withdrawals, sort of like a run on the bank, and FTX didn't have the funds to meet them. So in a rescue attempt, it reached a deal with Binance to sell itself. Binance then backed out. And so by November 11th, it was over. FTX filed for bankruptcy and Bankman-Fried resigned as CEO. Just over a month later, on December 13th, Sam Bankman-Fried was indicted, accused of misappropriating billions of dollars at the cryptocurrency exchange. And this is where we pick the story back up with Ava. So Ava, if you will, just remind us of the charges that he is facing. So Sam Bagman-Fried is facing seven charges in total. He has pleaded not guilty to all of them. Those charges include wire fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Uh, among them, I'd say wire fraud is the most uh, serious that he faces, uh, each attracting a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. So he could spend a lot of time in prison for this if the the prosecution is able to prove this, right? What do they need to prove for him to be found guilty? One of the key elements they need to prove here is intent. That Sam Bankman-Fried set out to defraud people, to steal billions of dollars, to commingle customer funds, and that he knew what he was doing was wrong. This will be the biggest hurdle that they have to overcome. Sam Bankman-Fried will likely turn around and argue that he didn't have that intent and that he acted in good faith and he didn't know uh, that he was inadvertently committing fraud. Yeah, remembering here that Sam Bankman-Fried was someone who practiced what we call effective altruism or what he called effective altruism, the idea that he wanted to do good with all this money he had. And I wonder how that's going to come up over the course of this trial. How long do we expect this trial is going to last? How long it's going to take his defense team to make their case and for the prosecution to make theirs? The trial is expected to last uh, at a, around six weeks. Uh, we heard that the prosecution's case could go uh, from three to four weeks and the defense will go uh, for a week to a week and a half. So we're looking into a, a, a way into November. And so when we think about what's going to happen first, as I said, this trial begins this coming Tuesday. What happens on that day? How long is it going to be before we start getting into, you know, the meaty part of these proceedings? The first day is set aside for a administrative process, but a very important one. This is when the jury will be impaneled. Uh, So a whole bunch of 
Uh, everyday New Yorkers will come into a big room at the uh, courthouse uh, in Lower Manhattan and they will go through the process of being appointed to the jury. Uh, the prosecution and the defence will have the opportunity to object to specific jurors uh, being as part of that trial. By the end of the day, hopefully, um, we will have a jury of 12 men and women who are ready to get things started the following day. Uh, on the Wednesday, that's when we'll really see um, all of the juicy details um, start to emerge. That's when the prosecution um, will open their case and we will hear um, the, the full extent of the allegations against um, Sam Bateman-Fried. The defence will also have a opportunity to give an opening statement. I'd like to... Re- turn to your point about the idea of selecting this jury. Given the high profile of this case, we're talking about something that has been dubbed one of the biggest financial fraud cases in history. You know, we put this kind of in a basket, at least in common thought with Enron or or Bertie Madoff. How hard is it going to be to select an unbiased jury? That's a good question. Uh, We got a little bit of an insight into the types of questions the defence and the prosecutions want to ask this jury. For the defence, they have asked the judge uh, if the jury can be asked uh, certain questions about the crypto industry. Have they um, ever invested in crypto? Have their friends or family um, been the victims of a financial fraud before? Uh, Do they think that a person who is at the uh, head of a company should be held responsible if that company fails? There was also a question in there about effective altruism. Uh, what's their views on a person amassing wealth and then giving that away. So that gives us a little bit of an insight into the kind of juror that St. Bakeman Freed's defence may want to see as part of that trial. Uh, On the prosecution side, the the questions were a lot more general. Have they been a victim of of a crime? Do they know anyone within the DOJ? Uh, What are their views on crypto? Uh, So I think uh, there's been so much publicity about this case. Uh, It'll be hard to pick someone who hasn't heard of Sam Bankman-Fried. The challenge will be really drilling down to see if anyone has any very um, strong views that they can't put aside uh, on crypto or on fraud uh, that won't allow them to be able to carry out that exercise without bias. Okay, so it might be a little tough to to get the jury together. But once it is, let's talk about what they're going to hear and who they're going to hear from. Talk to me about the witnesses in this case, because I know that there's three really important ones, former really close associate uh, associates of Sam Bankman-Fried, former executives of FTX and Alameda-related enterprises. Tell us why these witnesses may be key. They are really at the heart of the prosecution's case here, and certainly who... Um, we are really looking forward to hearing from. The three witnesses are Caroline Ellison, who was, like you said, the head of Alameda, Nishad Singh, who was the director of engineering at FTX, and Gary Wong, who was Bankman Freed's um, high school friend and helped co-found FTX. Uh, The three of them together are going to give a very powerful insight into what was happening at FTX, uh, almost in foundation, but also in those final days before it, um, uh, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, for Nishad Singh and Gary Wong in particular, they're going to speak about, they're likely to speak about the code at FTX uh, and that they were asked to change the code to give Alameda a loophole essentially to access customer funds um, whenever it wanted. Caroline Ellison is a, a little bit different in that she was uh, leading Alameda research uh, and one of the key allegations in this case is that 
Sam Bankman-Fried misled investors about the relationship between FTX and Alameda, that Alameda was using customer funds however it wanted, for high-risk trading, for loans to executives. So she'll be able to give a little bit of an insight into how that dynamic um, actually operated. Um, the prosecutors have said that they've got up to 50 potential witnesses that they could call. Of course, it's highly unlikely that they will call every single one of them, but we think we're going to hear from other former employees, investor victims, FBI agents, uh, and some forensic accountants as well, who will try to walk the jury through uh, Alameda's financials, FTX's financials, to make it this case as simple as possible. All right. Well, the eyes of Washington and probably a lot of other places around the world will be on New York for this trial beginning this coming week. Thank you very much to Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison and Tom. We'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Australia and preview what we can expect from the RBA. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Australia's monthly inflation gauge accelerated in August. So what do we expect from the new Reserve Bank of Australia bank governor at her first board meeting next week? For more, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor, Doug Krisner. Tom, in the week ahead, the new governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Michelle Bullock, will lead her first meeting of the central bank. Bullock, by the way, is the first woman to serve as governor of the RBA. She was appointed back in July. And like many central bankers around the world, Bullock is being confronted with stubbornly high inflation. For a closer look now at the RBA decision, I'm joined by James McIntyre, Bloomberg's economist covering Australia and New Zealand. James joins us from our studios in Sydney. Thanks for being with us, James. Before we get to the story on inflation, I want to try to apply a little context here because Bullock is taking over from Phil Lowe. Now, he had been facing calls to resign in recent months before his departure. He had been condemned by the public and accused of misleading Australians about future rate increases. Now, I know Bullock was at the RBA when those decisions were made, but I'm wondering whether restoring credibility is, is kind of job one. 
Well, that's a really good point. Not only was Bullock at the RBA, but she was actually, as deputy governor, was at the board meetings, was at those meetings when those decisions were made, not only to to raise rates as they've done in the fastest uh, uh, height tightening cycle in the inflation targeting era. So the RBA has been targeting inflation since uh, the 1990s and more than 30 years now. So not only was she um, she there for those rate hike decisions, but also part of the decision making around that communication that that ended up uh, tripping up Phil Lowe. Now, you know, it's been tough going the last couple of years for central bankers. And if you think that your economy might be locked up for three years, you, you know, you could yeah, make an, a credible case that that was going to be the uh, what, where policy might go. But then. As the situation changed, I think Phil Lowe's ability to communi- no, make that communication change uh, obviously didn't uh, didn't flow or didn't flow in a way that people like. Who really does like interest rates rising, especially on their home loans, the way they work here in Australia? Uh, so that's that's been what happened to Lowe. And it's also the challenge. It's not the only challenge uh, that uh, that Governor Bullock faces. Over her term, which lasts for seven years, so her first board meeting uh, this coming week, she will be implementing these reforms to the mm. RBA, including this new monetary policy committee uh, staffed by external uh, monetary policy experts. That's something that the RBA hasn't had to deal with before. So it's not just a credibility restoration uh, uh, communication challenge for, for Governor Bullock, but as as the uh, the review rolls in and as her term rolls on, uh, communication, I think, is going to be the theme uh, for her term uh, in the chair. Well, let's take a quick look at the overhaul as a result of that government review. What are some of the major changes she must implement? Well, uh, I guess one of the changes is uh, she, she'll have less to do rather than monthly meetings, 11 of them a year, which the RBA used to do. They'll be moving to to eight, and that's pretty consistent with uh, other central banks uh, around the world. Um, you know, the RBA did like to have uh, you know the opportunity to communicate month to month and do things a bit more gradually. So that step change, that's a communication challenge as to how to to nuance what might be slightly more lurching changes in communication, uh, in in uh, in policy direction press conferences after every meeting. That's going to be something uh, that will be a little bit different and we'll, we'll get to see how Bullock handles those. But also this new monetary policy committee, the experts or you know the external appointees, they're expected to be out there uh, communicating about monetary policy to the, to, uh, the community at, at large. And so having a whole range of different voices, whereas up until now, the RBA has been had a monopoly on monetary policy and explaining it and explaining the direction. James, thank you so much for helping us set up the RBA meeting. James McIntyre, Bloomberg's economist covering Australia and New Zealand. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Well, thank you, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning, 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth. 
and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.